Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Let's all turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 31. And the text says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Let us pray. We now humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen me to deliver a word of power so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Here is my question for the church today. If someone came up to you after you leave service today, when you're on the train, when you're at work, and they asked you, how does salvation work? What would your answer be? If they said, what's this whole Jesus, God, church thing about? How does, what's the formula God uses? What are the divine mechanics? Would you have an intelligent, biblically informed answer ready to go? Because if the answer is no, you're going to find this sermon very helpful. It's called How Salvation Works. Now here's why an answer to that question is so important. Because if you know how salvation works, then you know the person in charge of salvation, God. And if you know the one with whom you're in a relationship with, you will have a healthy relationship. If you, however, do not know your partner, the relationship will be unhealthy. So if you are ready to understand, to learn how salvation works, give me an amen. So the first link in the chain is foreknowledge. Those who he, God, foreknew. So what does foreknowledge mean? Foreknowledge means more than knowing about nameless, faceless people. It means knowing someone in a deep interpersonal sense. God says he knew Jeremiah before he was born. The text says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. So a transcendent degree of sexual acts, but it involves a man knowing his wife and having that deep personal knowing. That's what foreknowledge entails. And the point is this, this is going to be my second point, but God can only predestine someone or choose someone who he foreknows because someone that he predestines or chooses is going to be with God in heaven for eternity, which is 
forever. And God's not going to choose someone to be with him that he doesn't know. Because nothing catches a sovereign God by surprise, so no one who's going to hang out with him in heaven forever, he's going to know everything about them, which already sounds like good news. Because that means God not only knows the good you're capable of, he also knows the bad you're capable of. God knows that version of you that gets up late, it rains, you forget your umbrella, you drop your cell phone, your boss gets on your nerves, your refund check is late. And the banker calls you and says, your loan was denied. And you say things and think things which sound very unholy. God knows that version of you. And in spite of that, he still chose you. Now this already sounds like good news because we're only on the first link of the chain and we already have hope. We already have a positive disposition for the future. And here is now a very key point. Interesting side note. If God foreknows you, he foreknows you in eternity, which means before the foundation of the world. The only way God can know you is if you exist, which means what? You existed in a spiritual, immaterial sense before this world ever existed. Here's a key point. You had being in the heart of God before you ever had being in this world. One more time. You had being in the heart of God before you had being in this world. So if anyone ever tells you that life begins at birth, it's a lie. If anyone ever tells you life begins in the womb, it's a lie. Life began in eternity with God before the womb ever existed. And before we leave this link of the chain alone, Foreknowledge happens in eternity. So our central sermon's question, how does salvation work? You already have two answers. If someone asks you, you say, number one, go to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 31. The second answer you tell them is that your salvation began with the foreknowledge of God before the foundation of the world. So before you were even born, God was already working your salvation out. Second link in the chain, predestination. So what does predestination mean? Predestination means a predestiny. It means you have a destination set before you take your first step. But the ver what the verse says is key. We are predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are predestined for what? So that he, Jesus, will be the firstborn among many brethren. What does that mean in plain, everyday English? I'm going to tell you. The first thing it means is that when you are predestined, you are chosen. 
You are elect. God Almighty in eternity selects and chooses you. Just like God chose Abraham, just as God chose Israel, just as God chose David. You were chosen. But you did not do the choosing. God did. So yes, you are chosen. Yes, that is a source of confidence. That is not a source of pride or arrogance because you were not involved in the choosing process. No one was ever predestined other than to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. No one was ever predestined to be the most persuasive preacher on planet Earth. No one was ever predestined to be rich. No one was ever predestined to have a successful music career and win lots and lots of awards. We were predestined for one singular purpose, to be conformed to the image of Christ, which means your entire life has its compass set on the destination of Jesus, and that is it. Because any other goal will pass away when this world passes away. We are predestined to his image only. So every step we take in the path of life is in pursuit of Jesus Christ. These verses tell us why we were predestined. And there is only one reason why anyone was ever chosen, why they were ever selected by God, and that is for the sake of Jesus Christ and Christ alone because we are saved by the grace of God alone, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Anyone in the entire Bible was never saved for their sake. It was only for the sake of Christ. And this is why that has to be true. Because if we were ever saved for our sakes or someone else's sakes, they will invariably always fail to hit the mark of perfect righteousness hit only by Jesus Christ. And this is where our legitimate Christian hope comes from, by the legitimate, real-life, flesh-and-bones person of Jesus who lived a life of perfect sinlessness and obedience, and is for his sake only that we are chosen. And because it's for his sake only, this raises an important point. Because there's someone out there saying, preacher, I don't like what you're saying. This whole predestination thing, it tramples all over my free will. I don't like the idea of someone telling me where I am going before I take my first step. I'm the one in charge of my life. Well, perhaps, but here's the best news of all. Because salvation is held in the hand of God, it is true, you can never put anything into the hand of the Creator, but it also means you can never take anything out of God's hands. 
which means on those days that you feel subpar, on those days when you feel unworthy, on those days when you feel inadequate, no, no bad feelings in the world can ever remove an eternally guaranteed salvation that rests in the firm grip of a God by whom there is none other. Because our salvation is in God's hands, because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Third link in the chain is calling. Those whom he predestined, he foreknew, he called. So what does calling mean? Calling means being moved inwardly and effectually by the Holy Spirit, being regenerated and being able to respond to Jesus Christ in faith. Now that sounds very Bible teachery. Let's break it down into very simple language. Being called means you have a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9. It means you no longer ascend to dead works, but you rise to living works that are worthy of a holy God. It means you begin to detest sin, and you find it abhorrent, and you long to do the will of God, not your will. A calling is an upward one, Philippians 3, 13 to 14. It means God elevates your hopes and desires and it refines your tastes. You begin to take steps day by day in your walk of sanctification in pursuit of Jesus. Our calling is a heavenly one, Hebrews 3.1. This means that it's a call from heaven back to heaven. You begin to look out at the world around you and see people who are happy with the way things are. But when you cast your eyes on God in heaven, you say, wait a minute, that's the way things are supposed to be. So you look at the world around you and say, there is something wrong. Things aren't right. No, that is not moral. Because I have cast my gaze on that which is above. And what happens is you begin to feel like a stranger. You begin to feel out of place you begin to feel very uncomfortable like a foreigner in a strange land because you have heard the call from heaven that wants you to go back to heaven. And you begin to realize things of this world are only corrupt and temporary. There's something better to be achieved. So it's a holy calling, an upward calling, and a heavenly one. Now, when you get the calling of God, make no mistake. This is perfect English right here. When you get got by the Holy Spirit, it is an irresistible, you can't run away from it, calling. When God Almighty said, let there be light, and he called forth the light. Darkness did not stand a chance. When Jesus called forth Lazarus, it didn't matter how dead, 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 dead his body was. How malodorous, how decrepit, 
how inhuman it looked because God called him. Lazarus had no choice but to get up. If you were in Israel during the time of Egyptian oppression and you had a noose around your neck and shackles on your feet and God himself called you and said, my chosen one, get up and get out. You're going home. That noose would fall down, those shackles would come off, and if there was a gate in your way, it would have swung open. Not even the sea could hold you back because you were called by God himself. Because when you get God by the call, nothing can stop it. And be assured, God never called anyone to shame. He never called anyone to condemnation. He called you to quicken you. He called you to preserve you. He called you out from bondage into a glorious promise. He has called you from darkness to light, from sin to holiness, from self-righteousness to faith in Jesus Christ. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. Fourth link in the chain, justification. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification. This is where it gets good. So justification means having the righteousness of Christ transferred, imputed to your account. I'll make that plain with the story first. I want you to imagine you live in this fictional world and your only goal in this life is to make it into a members only club in a bank. There are a couple problems though. I mean, you make good money, you make 75 grand a year, right? But in order to get into the members only club, you need to have a billion with a B dollars in the bank. Now you're gonna live maybe, you know, 90, 100 years, could you take care of yourself? But you know fully well, there is no way you're gonna get a billion dollars. Here's the other problem. You owe the bank $10 billion. Every single day, interest accrues, and the debt just keeps falling out of control. You don't have a rich uncle. You don't have any, it's just you and you alone. So one day you roll into the bank. Your eyes are cast on the ground. Your eyes are sunken because you haven't been sleeping, stressing over the debt. And you bring in your monthly debt payment of $100. The banker looks at you, he just feels so sorry for you. And you say, Mr. Banker, here is my monthly payment. And the banker says, your money's no good here anymore. You say, what? How would you like $10 billion? What's going on? And he said, there is this guy called Yeshua, called Christos, the Messiah. He walked in here acting like he was God or something. 
and he paid off all of your debts. You, you now owe the bank nothing. And you are, yeah, clap. So that you're not gonna pay off. You owe the bank nothing. But on top of that, on top of the fact that he paid off your debt, he transferred a billion dollars out of his account into your account. So welcome to the members only club. Now you fall on your face, you're, you're just distraught with joy, and the tears are streaming down your face. And you just say, Mr. Banker, how could this be? This is not fair. I don't deserve this. And the banker said, you're right, because grace is never fair. This is what really happens now. Every man, woman, or child has to stand before God in judgment, before the judgment seat. If you are an unregenerate pagan idolater and have the nerve to tell God something like, I never really believed you existed. There wasn't enough proof. Or I professed faith in Allah or Buddha or I was a Scientologist. You are immediately cast away into the abyss where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is fair because if you live a life less Christ, God gives you an eternal inheritance less Christ. However, if you have professed faith in Christ, when you stand before God, the Father in his judgment seat, and he asks you, my son, my daughter, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you into the members-only club? And you fall out on his feet, and you say, oh, Lord, based on your loving kindness and grace alone, for it is not for my sake, only for the sake of Jesus Christ. The father will then turn to Jesus and say, do you know this person? And he will then say, I knew them before the foundation of the world. They had a place in my heart before they were born. I've been praying for them for all of eternity. Of course I know them. And then Jesus, dressed in his glorious white robes, which are illuminant and blinding with white light, which represent his sinlessness and his righteousness, he then takes his robe and transfers it over to you. And although you walked into the court of God a sinner, and you are now clothed in the robes of Christ because you have been in Christ all this time. When God now looks at you, he doesn't see what happened before. He doesn't see the sins that you have committed. Because of your repentant heart, now all he sees is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. 
He then declares you just and treats you as if you are worthy. He treats you as if you are righteous. He treats you as if you are holy. And then God says, welcome, my son. Welcome, my daughter, to eternity. And then you spend the rest of your time in paradise with other people just like you who are treated as if they are just. And as you fall on your feet with tears in your eyes saying, my God, my God, I don't understand your grace because this is not fair. Jesus will then smile and say, my son, my daughter, grace is never fair. That's link number four. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification. And now glorification. Glorification means being raised from the dead in a new imperishable body and having eternal life with the Lord forever in heaven. And Jesus gave us a foreshadowing of this when he was crucified and rose again from the dead three days later. Now what glorification means is that for the believer, death is not a period that ends the sentence of our life. Death is a comma that serves as a transition to a more glorious inheritance. Because glorification tells us that God is concerned with eternity, not with the present. And salvation is something which begins in eternity with foreknowledge and ends in eternity with glorification. Brother Evans, put the map up. This map represents what it took me 36 years to truly understand. And for everyone who's watching this online or listening to this on their smartphone, let me explain to you what the congregation is seeing. There is a long yellow line which stretches across the length of the screen, which represents eternity. In the middle of that line, you can barely even see it. There's a teeny tiny notch that says now. This represents, you know, the, all of time, forever. But the problem is that this slide doesn't do eternity justice. Because eternity is forever, which means it's forever. So this line stretches out the window, through the Empire State Building, through LA, through Pluto, to the ends of the Milky Way galaxy. It loops around, comes back, and goes around and around and around and around, over and over and over and over again. Eternity is forever, so eternity always matters more than the present, simply because there is so much more of it. We are living now. If we're lucky, we'll make 90 or 100. But how does that compare to billions of trillions to gazillions of years? And here is the catch. The world and the devil will try to make you focus all of your attention on now. It'll try to make you wager and put all of your chips in 
So you concentrate all of your focus on now. And the cost of that wager is that you sacrifice eternity, which is never a bet you can win. For what is the season of the present when eternity is at stake? And look at what God does. God realizes eternity is more valuable than the present. So he wrought all of this out. He wrought your salvation in eternity so that you end up back with him in the same eternity again. So the now can offer you so many things. They can offer you a million dollars. So what? They can offer you fame. So what? They can offer you a title. So what? What do those things matter in the context of eternity? They fail to. That doesn't dismiss the value of doing things and making a life for yourself now. What it does is forces you to put everything into context. For if you build up your treasures here, what will happen when this world passes away? It's gone. So what this map tells you is that your passports have been lying to you for your entire life. When you go home and look at your passport, it'll say, so-and-so is a citizen of the United States. That's a lie. Amen. You are a citizen of heaven, and you are only here temporarily in the airports of the present, waiting to board your flight to go back home. You are only waiting here in anticipation of being in a blessed hill, a blessed city on a hill whose foundation is righteousness and whose bricks are made of justice and truth. You are waiting to enter the mansion in heaven that has your name on it, but it will not take any occupants until you arrive at the front door. It is written in 2 Timothy that there is a crown of righteousness waiting for us with God's glorious promise. That is a crown that only you can wear. If the prophet Elijah tried to put on your crown, it wouldn't fit. If David tried to put on your crown, it would not fit. Only when you arrive will that crown neatly and securely fit on someone's head. So poor Christian, it doesn't matter how fearful and bad situations are right now. Cheer up. Know that, yes, indeed, you will have to bear the cross before you wear the crown, but God has already wrought this in eternity for you to end up back there. So always better is the end of a thing than its beginning because eternity matters more than the present. And this entire chain that I've gone through, from foreknowledge to glorification, it's referred to as the golden chain of salvation. It's not the chain with a rusty link. It's not the chain with a weak link. It is the golden chain because it is held in the hands of God, and we can be eternally sure and eternally certain of our salvation because it rests in his hands and we can never do anything to take anything away from it. So what does this all mean? I'm going to conclude the same way that Paul does when he writes, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, I don't know if Paul meant that to be rhetorical, but there are a few things that can be against us. Our own flesh can be against us. Other people can be against us. The world can be against us. And the devil is always against us. But what the golden chain tells us is that we may suffer many afflictions now and they may bruise our heel. But in the end, no matter what happens to you now in the present, is utterly meaningless because all of those things are predestined to fail. Yes, the devil has might, but God is almighty. Yes, other people can inflict finite pain, but God is infinite. Yes, the world may make you a very attractive offer, but never something that you can exchange for your soul. So indeed, if God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly the Father is for us because he is the one who before the foundation of the world chose us. Certainly, Jesus is not against us because he is the one who came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. Certainly, the Spirit is not against us because he is the one who sanctifies us and grows our faith day by day. Before you were born, your name was written onto the heart of the Messiah, and he longs to embrace you in eternity again. Yes, we shall face hardships in the present. Yes, we shall have heartache in the present. But the weight of glory which waits for us will make all these temporal afflictions seem like nothing. So yes, we must bear the cross in anticipation of the crown which awaits us. For if you are at peace at God, who can truly go to war with you? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Now, before I leave this sermon alone, I have to ask a dangerous question. Because Paul ends these series of verses by, if God is for us. The sentence is guarded by the word, if. So here's my question, what if not? Because if we have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our heart, the perfect justice of a perfect God demands that he be against us. So if God is for you, why aren't you for God? Beloved, we're living in a world now where times are changing. There are wars, there are rumors of wars. We have a nation that's polarized. 
And when I read that Bible, there are many things that I am not sure of now. But I am eternally sure in things to come based on the faithful promise of a faithful God. 2017 ought to be a year of conviction. Because as political regimes are changing and the world around us is changing, the cardinal question we have to ask ourselves is, is our salvation secure? Because now that I've explained how salvation works, the question is, are you in fact working out your own salvation with fear and trembling? And the reason why this is a call to conviction is because many of us are fighting against God. We are friends with sin, and therefore we are enemies of God. This is a message to those out there. No matter where you are in the four corners of the earth or listening to this on your phone, I don't know how long the sin has been there. I don't know how long you've tolerated it or lived a dual life where you're at war with yourself, where you look at the sin to become your friend. It's reached a steady state where you can go about your life and not really bother you that much. And the question I have for you is how long will this continue? If God is for you, why aren't you for God? Why is there covetedness in your heart where you long for things that aren't God? You do these things because there's a void inside of you and you want to fill it. But the more you bathe yourself in iniquity, the deeper and darker that hole goes. Is it because you have placed idols in the presence of the Most High? Is it adultery in your heart? Is it adultery in action? You may not have murdered someone else, but you have malice in your heart, enmity against your brother. Have you ignored and dishonored your parents? Have you violated the sanctity of the Sabbath day? Or have you not bear true witness and lied or withheld the genuine truth from others when called upon? 2017 is a year of conviction, which means we must confess and repent. For it is written that a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. And if we confess, he will blot out every trace of unrighteousness within us. How long? Will you waver between your opinions and allow this unconfessed sin to go on? How long will you ignore the law of God written on your conscience that tells you to stop, but you feel as if you can't? I am but a preacher, but a simple man imploring you to change your ways on a Sunday morning. I'm entreating you to voluntarily change your ways and examine yourself. What do you think is going to happen when God makes you repent? Hear what God wants you to hear through the words of the psalmist. 
These things you have done, and I have remained silent. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider these words, ye that forget God, lest I tear you to pieces, and there be none left to deliver. Beloved, the time for action is now. Confess and repent. Now that's the bad news. Here's the good news. You have been warring with yourself for so long, and you can no longer put up with it. You've tried every scheme imaginable to stop, but you can't. Why? Because it was never meant for you to do by yourself. Jesus Christ already died to set you free. You are fighting a war that you cannot win because he already defeated the enemy. And if my words have offended you, if they've unsettled you, my next question is why? Because if you've been at peace with God for this long, it should come as a compulsion to assist those who are experiencing this. The freedom that you're longing for, the liberation that you seek, can only be wrought in your life with confession. The thing, the person you've been running from is God, but God is exactly the one who can fix your problem. But only if you confess and repent, and you are not realizing how powerful confession is going to be. You have to take this sin by the horns and shed a light upon it, because once you expose it and you approach them and tell them what you have done wrong, you will finally be free. You can never atone for the sin Jesus already has. So lay bare your iniquities by the cross. Plead for the loving kindness and mercy of the Messiah, for he will not shun you. He will quicken you and he will strengthen you because it is written that once, what was once as scarlet shall now be like snow and a soul stained by the blood guiltiness of crimson will should be made like wool. Beloved, we are called to action to do these things, to confess and repent, and we rest upon the steadfast promise of the Messiah, knowing in his word it says, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And that, beloved, is exactly how salvation works. God bless you. listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafo.com.